The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. You're listening to The Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Molly Jean Bennett. On this week's show, we have an interview with Courtney Ray of Bark, an organization that seeks to defend and restore Mount Hood's forests. We also have three short documentaries. Let's begin with this piece on the Circus Project by Carly Meisberger. At age 14, Nell Taylor left home and lived on the streets. At age 18, she joined the circus. But it wasn't just any circus. Nell had found her way to the Circus Project a contemporary circus organization that promotes artistry and personal transformation through circus instruction and performance. The Circus Project provides circus classes for the community, but they also partner with schools and human service agencies to provide classes to at-risk or marginalized youth. In general, the goal is to use circus arts as in like a, a social work or um, like process work therapy approach. That's now. Currently, she's the chair of the Homeless Advocacy Committee for the Circus Project. She's passionate about her work because of her experience in the Circus Project's Homeless Youth Company. I asked Nell how being involved in the program impacted her life. When you're homeless, like no one holds you accountable for anything because people just assume that you can't do anything. So no one gives you an opportunity where you have to be responsible. Um, so having that and just having something to look forward to going to every day kind of sparked this like, okay, well I can't do this training if I'm using drugs because it's really hard and it's dangerous. Um, I can't do this training if I don't have access to proper nutrition. I can't do this training if I'm sleeping outside and I don't have some place to like practice and work out. When Nell joined the training company, she didn't have a job, she was sleeping outside, and she was actively involved in drug use. But by the end of the nine-month program, she had gotten her first job, become involved in a transitional housing program, and had been accepted to Portland Community College. When there's things that you haven't even been able to like, discuss with a therapist or figure out a way to um, use a dialogue to sort through, but it just hits you when you're 24 feet in the air on a trapeze and you realize that you've like overcome a fear or something and you have someone there who's not only a trained circus coach, but you have someone there who's like either a social worker or a therapist who can kind of walk you through that. That's something that I never would have gotten at any other like arts training. Located in Northwest Portland, the Circus Project provides community programming for all ages and includes training companies and intensive programs. I visited with the students involved in the Summer Performance Intensive, a nine-week program that culminates in a performance at the American Youth Circus Festival, to learn more about the draw of the circus. My name is Zoe. I've been doing stuff with the Circus Project for probably about two years. Zoe found her way to the Circus Project because she was looking for a program that would allow her to practice circus every day of the week. As a kid, I did soccer for most of my childhood, and it just never, I never got excited about it, and I never really wanted to go. But every time I think about being able to, to perform or learn a new trick or just like go to practice, I get excited and I want to go because I know that I get to make something that's individual to me. Leo, another student, also describes circus as more than just a unique way to get physically fit. 
definitely being in the youth company made me realize how mentally positive it is to be in and like do acrobatics and create art and be with people that are really passionate about what they do and I thought that was really empowering. After speaking with Mel and the summer intensive students, the circus is sounding like a place worth running to. During the 2014-15 school year, the Oregon Department of Education reported 3,232 unaccompanied homeless students across the state. Arts organizations like the Circus Project may not be the answer to a problem as complex as youth homelessness, but it's certainly a place to start. Carly Meisberger reporting for X-Ray FM. That was Tommy James dragging the line. The reason that I played that song is I learned just last week that is apparently, at least according to Tommy James, the first use of tree hugger. 
as a word. I love the song for the line, My Dog Sam Eats Purple Flowers. Uh, they were apparently stoned in New York State writing the song and came up with the idea of if you see a tree near you, you should hug it. Uh, we are talking with Courtney Ray, who is the community organizer for Bark, which can I say that you guys do a bit of tree hugging? There's there's typically some tree hugging. It's by choice. It's not part of the program. Uh, but yes. Courtney Ray is is with Bark and why don't you start out with telling me what Bark stands for? The 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 name itself, sure. not the principles. Okay. Uh, well Bark uh, is not an acronym. Actually, it refers to the Barker, so a historical figure that would stand out in the community and call attention to something that you know they believe the public really needed to to know um, and ultimately take action against. And so it's that in that verbiage, you know, to bark at is to bring, to show you know that there's some threat um, to raise the alarm. It's also the protective layer of the tree, so it works kind of a couple different ways. Yeah, let's take the first part of that idea. What is Bark telling us that we need to be aware about or worried about? Right, so Bark is the local resource for watchdogging Mount Hood National Forest. And what that basically means is looking at what the Forest Service, which is a federal agency, is doing on those public lands. And the commercial timber program is the main goal of the Forest Service. And so we're looking at what is happening on the ground in the areas that are proposed to be logged and then letting the public know what's at risk. And and Bark started nearly 25 years ago, which in some ways was a very different era mm -hmm. in terms of forest policies. That was the end of the clear-cutting era, or at least massive clear-cutting era and, and the beginning of a change. That was also really at the tail end of the controversy uh, and the legal fights over this, what became known as the spotted owl controversies. Mm -hmm. um, how much has changed since then and how has Bark evolved in a quarter century? A lot has changed, um, but some things have stayed the same and we are seeing impacts that are just as concerning as some of the things that you mentioned. Um, just this year we saw the first clear cut on Mount Hood in about 10 years. They hadn't been proposing anything of that sort, uh, but we see that there's kind of a push for bigger projects, um, heavier logging. Things like the Spotted Owl Recovery Plan are are still in place, but they aren't necessarily protecting against the logging in the same way that we thought they would when we passed those kinds of legislation. Um, one thing that's definitely changed is that we are facing real climate change that people have talk about in their daily lives and are accepting that, and that is something that wasn't really on the table or in the conversation 20, 25 years ago, and certainly not in the way that agencies are managing the lands. Let's 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 do a sort of a, a flyover of Mount Hood to get an idea of some of the uh, the land and who is governing it. I mean, because Mount Hood is a massive area from from really from I mean from Sandy on the west side to Mount or to Hood River on the north to Estacada on the south. I mean, that's a it's a big chunk of land. How much of that is is federal land? How much of that is Forest Service within that federal land? It's one point one million acres, roughly. It goes a good deal south of Estacada, down toward Detroit Lake. Um, and then the Willamette National Forest begins where the Mount Hood National Forest ends. It's all forest land. It's all federal land. All the national forests in the country are federal and public lands. They're managed by the Forest Service. That's in the Department of Agriculture. And so ultimately, these lands are kind of seen as crops, as a crop to be, to be harvested. And, you know, that's where 
spark kind of emerges is that that philosophy doesn't suit what people really need to in the way that they interact with the landscape. Um, for one thing, we need drinking water. And this forest is ultimately the filtration and delivery system for over a million people's drinking water. Um, those are the kind of priorities that we think the agency should manage for rather than treating it as an agricultural product. And I, I just want to keep on some of this this background information. So uh, for, there's Forest Service, there's the National Park, there's, mm -hmm. uh, there, there's National Monuments, mm -hmm. which is a big controversy right now in Southern Oregon. Uh, there, so some of those things are in the Department of Interior. And they're just managed by different agencies. The names are all really similar. And it is a little confusing. We do a, um, a series of activist training programs to kind of give everyone the lay of the land in this policy way. Uh, it's an intro to forest policy is one of the trainings that we offer. And so in that, we, we go from when the settlers came west, you know, with the Homestead Act and those kinds of policies, and how did this, these lands get transferred from indigenous hands into the hands of settlers and into the hands of the federal government. And how has all of this different designation, whether it's national forest, national monument, national park, there's ONC lands, there's Bureau of Land Management lands, there's all these different designations. And so we go through that in, as part of our activist training program. And, and but BARC is really focused on the national forest. Just Mount Hood. We are place-based. Okay. And that has implications for national forests elsewhere. And obviously, ecosystems are all connected throughout the Pacific Northwest. Uh, but we believe that if we can really tie into this location and this place that is so near and dear to people in Portland, um, that we can see local changes that could be replicated or could be inspired um, could inspire, you know, places outside of Mount Hood that have a similar situation, that have similar concerns. Absolutely. And and I, I want to pick up on that, what you just said, that, that Mount Hood is near and dear to Portland. Certainly in the summer months, we can, uh, it is an icon there standing in the east. And, and during the winter months, uh, certainly during the summer months, people are up there hiking. And during the winter, people are up there skiing. Mm -hmm. How much uh, awareness is there to the threats to Mount Hood? Uh, can can you assess that, or is is there sort of an ignorant bliss about Mount Hood, or or are, are people? Do you find that people are really aware that there are threats? I think that people are, and I really think that it depends on how how you spend your time there. If you go straight to the top and straight to the lodge and up to the ski resort, or um, just to certain kind of high traffic uh, hiking trails or things like that then you won't see the timber program because it's they keep that far away from the most popular public areas. But if you're the kind of person who likes to venture off in kind of uncharted territory, you're going to come across the impact of the timber projects consistently throughout north, south, east, and west all over the forest. We do have several wilderness areas, and so those are protected from as much human impact as possible, um, and people often go there as well. And it's just there can be a, a diversity of of awareness, I guess, depending on the time that you spend and where you go. And so part of our work is to take people to the places that are proposed to be logged before they're logged and sometimes after to give people that information that they wouldn't see if they're just using the, you know, the the trail maps that are kind of catering to just strictly recreation. Can, can you take us to a couple of those places right now here on the radio that are, are proposed to be logged? Sure. Uh, well, right now we're looking at a timber sale called the Crystal Clear timber sale. It's over 13,000 acres, so that's almost as big as Manhattan Island. Uh, it's on the east side of Mount Hood, so if you take the 26 
I guess if you start here in Portland on Powell Boulevard and you head east, you'll turn it. It'll turn into the 26, take you through Sandy, which is a small town. There's a great donut shop there. Joe's Donuts. Joe's Donuts. Shout out to Joe's Donuts. <laughs> Keep on going. Um, you'll cross the mountain. You'll cross past government camp and start to head back down on the east side and toward the Warm Springs Reservation. And as you get to clear a place called Clear Lake, you are now adjacent to the area that would be the timber sale. And so from the very um, southernmost section of the forest along the 26 and then east across, there's an OHV area called McCubbin. Um, the White River drainage is out there. The Barlow Road, the old Barlow Road is out there. And the timber sale kind of encompasses, you know, 13,000 acres between the highway and then the eastern boundary of the forest. And when do you say timber sale? So this, the sale's already gone through or you're hoping to stop the sale of it? So it's in one of the earlier stages. Uh, we've seen the maps. We see what they intend to log and we see their, um, I guess, the rationale that they're giving for it. And now that we can see these specific locations that they want to take timber from, we can go there. And that's what we'll be doing for the next several months. And we have been um, since last winter when we got the maps first. But we send our volunteers and staff out there to visit each unit. It's called a unit. Units are just smaller chunks of forest, a few acres at a time. Each unit has a number and a map associated with it. So we'll kind of systematically work our way across the landscape, looking at each unit and looking for things that would be pretty obvious, like, is this old growth? If it is, you shouldn't log it. That's protected. is there like significant drainage of water here? Is this a, is this an active watershed? Are these species? Is it a, is there a diver- level of diversity that's special? Is there anything special here? If we find um, plant life that is protected or animal signs of animal life that are on the endangered species list, for example, then that will help us make the case that this that unit or all these units should be removed from. The proposal, and so we'll be in this phase of it, kind of going back and forth over what they've proposed, and what we believe is actually going on in those spots, until we kind of flesh all of this out. Then they'll have a final proposal. That sounds a little so bit later on. civil, and, and and as opposed to you know, I I I you know came of age and moved to the Pacific Northwest uh, during the Earth First days and during the uh, eco what's called eco-terrorism now Mm. days and spiking of trees. And it seemed to be a much more uh, uh, clash. Mm -hmm. And this sounds much more like a dialogue. Is that, is that a fair way to characterize this? Yes. I think it is much more like a dialogue. I, I don't know that the forest service is always listening as closely as we would want them to. And I know that, the directives that they're operating under often just tie their hands in a way and they aren't able to necessarily take our perspective um, into consideration or give us what we want in that way. Um, but the fact that there is a public process is really important, that that information has to be made public, that we have different points throughout the process where we can object. Um, and all of those things are under threat now with this new administration. So our ability to have that dialogue is pretty tenuous and these other tactics are not necessarily like 
bygone. Maybe uh, you should take reason. to Twitter, and that would be that would be a way of having a dialogue with the federal government. <laughs> <laughs> I want to take a music break. We are going to come back, and I want to talk more about the change and uh, in the the White House and how that has affected um, policy on Mount Hood and with the Forest Service. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. We're going to take a quick music break. We'll be right back to talk about Trump. <laughs> Nonprofit Hour. We are talking with Courtney Ray, who is a community organizer for BARC, which is a wonderful organization that uh, takes efforts to keep Mount Hood, uh, keep Mount Hood, Mount Hood. Yeah. And to protect the forests that make up Mount Hood. Before the music we break, we were talking about uh, change in the White House, and that really does affect uh, federal policy, obviously, and federal policy is what governs a large swath of the land that encompasses Mount Hood and makes up Mount Hood and makes up the forest of Mount Hood. 
have you seen on a on a day-to-day basis or on a a a site-to-site basis have you seen a change in the tone in the policies at the forest service one of the first things that the new administration did was to um kind of redact the climate change directives that the obama administration had put in place and those would have those basically told all federal agencies that you have to think about climate change when you just make decisions about things. That's it. That's all it said. It was like, think about it. Include this in your analysis. And that was one of the first things that disappeared from the White House website when that that moment of transition was happening. And so it was pretty clear from the very beginning that they were going to try to roll back any any protections or regulations that would hold extractive um, interests in those types of projects at bay on lands that are that are um, held in the public trust and so and that and no dapple you know letting um, giving a directive to put the pipeline through all of these things are kind of an indicator that the the extractive interests have someone they have an ally in the White House and we're, they're gonna look for barriers to be removed but our barriers to them are the things that make it livable for us and for everything else that needs to live here and so it's not. It's more than a change in tone. I think the policies are coming in the form of, you know, erasing national monuments. Um, trying to. Trying to. Trying to. <laughs> um, yeah, enabling, you know, deeper exploration in the Arctic and all of these kinds of things. You can see that that's where it wants to go. And the idea that the public wouldn't have a say in it is really concerning because even in times when we didn't necessarily have the the regulatory tools that we needed, we still had access to the information. We could find out what was someone planning to do and where. But that might that might itself be lost. There's a bill right now um, introduced by uh, the representative from Arkansas, Westerman. It's called the Federal Forest, Resilient Federal Forest Act. And this has been floating around for a few years now. I think it was first introduced in, I want to say 2012 or 13. It's steadily gotten worse, um, more aggressive in the rollbacks of environmental regulations, for example, and the public interest. The bill as it stands right now would basically exclude any project up to 30,000 acres from going through a public analysis or from an environmental analysis being necessary. That would be any project that is up to twice as big as the one we're currently looking at at Mount Hood that we consider the largest in a generation. Um, that the idea that the public wouldn't get any information on that, wouldn't have an opportunity to object, is insane. Right. <laughs> I think, but that is something that um, we have. Our our uh, senator uh, Walden is a co-sponsor now, uh, recently on this bill. Co- Congressman. 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 Excuse me. Well, not. Please do not elevate him <laughs> any any higher than he already is. Senator, right? Um, but we have you know some other Congress folks who are who are, you know, more thoughtful about what the public interest is and how people should be able to be involved in the management of of public lands, in particular when the resources from those lands sustain your community, you know. And so so the local action, I think, is the the place that we need to, like, shore up our resources. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the ironies of the Forest Service is that you have uh, directives coming out of D.C. and and that are meant to be sort of one-size-fits-all, mm-hmm. although uh, a forest on Mount Hood is going to be very different than a forest in Arkansas and, and is going to need different policies and need different 
direction and need different handling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having site-specific information is incredibly important in making these decisions, and that's what our program, our Forest Watch program, is designed to do, is to go literally to the acreage that they're pointing at on a map and then look at it in detail, you know, and identify what's going on there ecologically. To use aerial photography or historical knowledge or any of that thing is kind of the, that's the baseline for the the agency's actions. And we know that having that detail is something that it, it needs to be known if we're going to say we're making good decisions. And there's an, there's a connection that happens there when you go and see and understand what this ecosystem is actually up to. Uh, last summer in the timber, in the hunter timber sale, we found a, a plant called a sundew, which is a carnivorous plant in one of the units of that timber sale. And because that sundew was there and it was maybe five or six inches of the ground okay. where it existed. And and carnivorous are eating flies, mm-hmm. spiders, or, okay. Very cool. rare, endangered Very plant. Cool. And because it was there and because of these six inches, the unit had to be dropped from the sale because it has a, it's a protected species. So if you don't have that, and I mean really local connection and understanding of the ecosystem, your policy or your uh, whatever project you're you're doing isn't going to, it can possibly be appropriate and is likely to be destructive. So I, I want to talk a bit about your job then. And and so you are going out to Sandy and Estacada and, and um, Parkdale and standing on the street corner and barking <laughs> out and saying, hey, we need to save the forest. Or how are you getting uh, local people, uh, local residents there focused or engaged? Mm-hmm. How does, talk me through that process. So we are based in Portland, so our, our reach is much deeper here, but we hold an annual event in the forest every year. We call it Base Camp. It's a public camp out, it's free. We kind of, we provide a kitchen and all of the infrastructure and invite the public to come. And so that's, in particular, the place where we'll go to the smaller communities that are that are farther out in the forest and invite people to spend that time um, with us looking at a timber sale in detail, but also kind of trying to tie together the community in Portland that cares about the forest and then the community that actually lives out in the forest and their interests, their perspective on what's going on. Um, and then we have a, a citizen outreach team of canvassers and they frequently go to Sandy, Hood River, sometimes to Estacada, maybe the slightly larger communities, and they do that street corner, um, barking about particular timber sales or places that the public can take action um, to engage the Forest Service. And talk to me about some of the reception there. I mean, Estacada until really 25 years or so ago when when Bark started Mm -hmm. was a logging community. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly that is a large, basis or a large it, mm-hmm. it's in its roots so to speak how has that mentality changed as logging is no longer uh as strong of an economic viability or or a job creator for those communities mm-hmm. is there resentment is there uh is there even a connection anymore to logging uh, is there an openness to say yeah we we do live in the forest we want to protect it mm, i think it's all of those things you know and so for me the idea is to find where can we work together to achieve more of the things we do want and then look at the things that we both consider that we might consider problems we might have conflict around and see if there could be solutions to that one of the things i think is really interesting about the economic thing is that uh 
timber in Oregon is like 2% of, I don't think it's quite 2% of the GDP of the state, really. It's, it feels like it's a very big piece of it in the mythic, but it's, it's, it's not on paper. Recreation, on the other hand, is huge, and it's growing massively. And not that everybody that lives in a forest community needs to be like a trail guide or something, but how can we look for ways that the same, the types of skills and knowledge that those communities have from having a timber background, from being in the forest, can be supported by the fact that people are very much interested in recreation now and opposed to commercial, at least on public lands. You know, obviously, there's many private lands, privately held forests all over the state, and those will continue to be logged at whatever rate their owners you know, want to. But on the public lands, um, there has to be a shared interest. And if we, it, we're moving away from the extractive industries on public lands, people are greatly opposed to it, not just on timber, but in mining and fracking, all of these things. And so where, where, yeah, where are those places for growth that allow people to continue like identifying themselves with the forest that they live in and and have their their jobs and their the economy supported by that. Um, Hood River is a good example. I mean, that is a town where the recreation economy has continues to be enormous <laughs> um, and really provides a lot of opportunities for people. And I think that another another way that Bark would like to see the Forest Service. Um, kind of engage in that same process of looking how to shift away from the timber economy is to put those folks that typically drive the bulldozers to build the logging roads to take those same bulldozers and like rebuild stream beds and improve fish passage or take out some of the really old roads which are just you know washing out washing into the creeks into the salmon streams and and causing a lot of destruction by by erosion and you know those same tools could be used for restoration but we have to flip more than just our thinking around it. We have to actually change the policies that the Forest Service uses to make decisions. And so they're doing their job right now the way as, as it's written. So if we can make some amendments to the way that that forest plan works on Mount Hood, then we have an opportunity to choose those new avenues of economics and things like that. There seems to be no shortage of work to be done. No shortage of work to be done. We are talking with Courtney Ray, who is community organizer for Bark. We're going to take a quick song break. We'll be right back.
the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. We are talking to Courtney Ray, who is a community organizer for BARC, who does the very important work of trying to protect and preserve uh, Mount Hood and its forests. Let's talk a little bit about you. Okay. How did you how did you become an environmentalist? Is is that a word that you'd use to describe yourself? I guess I would have to. Yeah, there isn't a better word out there yet. Um I grew up in the rural south. I grew up in a place where I could ride my bike. I think it was like four or five miles to a state park where there were caves, there were bats, there were snakes and coyotes and all kinds of stuff in my world as a kid. And so I've been, um, you know, that has been part of my landscape and the way that I understand my life since as long as I can remember having access to something besides my house and my school was a big deal as a kid. And so I guess with that as my foundation, you know, the more that I learn about the way that we interact with all of these other critters in landscapes, uh, I have a lot of concerns. And so that just has morphed into me looking for ways that I can use um, my time and my energy to help educate people about what, how our interactions are destructive to the landscape and to the non-human world, but they're also destructive to us. I know that I definitely feel it if I don't get a chance to get away from the city for a little while anywhere, even a park, just have some insulation from the like massive amount of, of industrial energy and like tech that's going on in a city um, has a real impact on me. And I think we're seeing more and more sociological and psychological studies coming out around that same kind of thing. So is it environmentalism? I'm not sure because it's also about us and our health for me. And and how did you get involved with Bark then? So I was a member of Bark. One of the canvassers stopped me when I was at a farmer's market a few years ago, told me all about it. I started giving him, I think, five bucks a month. And so I was getting emails and I was, you know, as a member, the job description came through one day and I just was like, great, that'll be good. I'll do that, you know. And I think I had my application in like 30 minutes after I got that email. Um, and I actually hadn't been that involved with the organization prior to that. I was working with Columbia Riverkeeper before that. And so once I got into the office and started meeting people and started hearing the history and just the massive amount of information that has been accumulated on through volunteers, you know, over two decades about how this ecosystem works and what the government's projects are doing to it, um, it just became really evident that there's a policy solution here as well. And that kind of changed my, that added a layer to my advocacy where I was kind of in education mode, public education mode. And now I feel like directing policy is really a solution that we need to get our, we need to like build up our chops on that as well. And, and it seems like Bart does try to do that in terms of meeting people where they are or engaging them uh, either recreationally because there are hikes that Bark leads, but then also at a, at a different part of the uh, engagement in terms of uh, connecting people to the legislative impacts or uh, what's governing what's going on on, on the Forest Service. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very diverse or it's a wide spectrum of activities. That's the interesting thing that it's public lands and federally managed, that means that, yes, we can we could treat it just as a recreational group. There are lots of recreation groups um, and they and they have the right to be there. And the 
the reason they're able to be there is because it's there's this underlying policy framework that makes it public and that directs the way that it appears and the way that people can get in there. But that wouldn't, you know, there's there's a missing piece, I think, um, if there's not advocacy included. That trail that you're on is funded by tax dollars. If someone, if Congress decides to change the budget for the Forest Service and take away the trail funding, that trail's going to be gone. And there are like volunteer trail crews and people like that, but the 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 massive infrastructure, especially in the West, that it takes to support the recreation on public lands, um, it's not. It's first of all, I don't think it's well tended enough. I think there are a lot of people who don't get the opportunity to go there. There's a number of issues with accessibility, um, but it's there at least. And if the public is going to utilize that, acts that resource and that right to be there, but if you don't understand that it could be taken away from you, <laughs> like basically at any time, Congress can just change the way that they manage public lands. And if folks don't understand that um, and have a, and understand how to get into this bureaucratic you know, chess game that is going on, um, then we don't have any power to protect these things that we enjoy. And so Bark wants to people to build those connections. We'll take you there. We'll show you. We'll, you know, teach you how to identify plants and animals and what's going on in the landscape. And then we'll show you what could happen if you if we don't, like, keep tabs on it and how how we can take action. And it is it is it's a big program, but we have so many volunteers. I think we have about 200 active volunteers and then another, I don't even know how many are kind of in the wings who like pop up here and there. So some of our volunteers have been in the forest for just as long as the organization has been around and have, you know, a generation or a couple decades worth of personal experience engaging with the Forest Service and knowing the landscape um, like the back of their hand, basically. Can you make a pitch for why somebody should get engaged with BARC? You should engage with Bark. Uh, the the number one thing that I can offer you with Bark is a chance to feel like you belong in a forest that sustains the life of you and your neighbors and your family. Um, being far removed from it here in Portland, being in your office or in your apartment or wherever you are, the forest is actually coming to you in a number of ways through your drinking water, the atmosphere, the weather that we have here, your access to rivers downtown if you, you know, all of these things are coming from the forest, but once you get out there, um, you can understand how it's actually generated. And that knowledge, I think, is really enriching, and it helps people dig their roots in in Portland in a way that is beyond the um, fancy chocolates and stuff like that. So um, I would just encourage people to to get involved just to feel good, <laughs> and then we'll put you to work, too, also, because... Uh, yeah, because the government's not doing the best job taking care of it. That was a that was a pitch that was uh, spiritual, ecological, and uh, civic. <laughs> very well done. We've been talking to Courtney Ray, who's a community organizer for Bark. We're going to go out with one last song. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you for having me. There's a great and a bloody fight around this whole world tonight. In the battle of bombs and shrapnel rain Hitler told the world around he would tear our union down But our union's gonna break them slavery chains And our union's gonna break them slavery chains 
I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down That's a union that'll tear the fascists down When I think of the men and the ships going down While the Russians fight on across the dawn There's London in ruins and Paris in chains Good people, what are we waiting on? Good people, what are we waiting on? So I thank the Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets The allies the whole wide world around To the battling British thanks You can have ten million yanks If it takes them to tear the fascists down, down, down If it takes them to tear the fascists down But when I think of the ships and the men going down And the Russians fight on across the dawn There's London in ruins and Paris in chains Good people, what are we waiting on? Good people, what are we waiting on? So I thank the Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets The allies the whole wide world around To the battling British thanks You can have ten million yanks If it takes them to tear the fascists down, down, down If it takes them to tear the fascists down From August 24th to September 7th, you can join BARC for a free public campout in the area of the Crystal Clear Timber Sale. Each day will start with a ground-truthing training to show campers how BARC gathers information about the forest that is proposed for logging. Then campers will head out to explore the forest around the White River. Each evening there will be an activity led by a different local organization. The campout is free and family-friendly. See the website www.bark-out.org basecamp or find them on Facebook for more details. Before we conclude our show today, we have two more short documentaries. Both were produced by students in our 2017 summer documentary program cohort. First up, we have a piece on Portland Tenants United by Emily Curtis. And we just got the 90-day no-cause. And we have 90 days to get out. Yep. Portland is locked in a housing crisis, so a non- The city saw rents appreciate nearly 15% in 2015, the highest increase in the nation. Affordable housing is a crisis in Portland. Since 2016, Portland Tenants United has been working in the eye of the storm, advocating for tenants in housing court and organizing huge protests in front of City Hall. They point to one underlying question that all Portlanders must ask themselves. Who gets to call a home a home? Homeownership has been, is the American dream. And apart from the wealth creation, Everything else about home ownership, you know, economic stability and, and better health outcomes and better education outcomes and higher senses of self-worth and self-esteem, that does not come from signing a piece of paper with Bank of America. That comes from feeling like your home is your home and it's a place you can stay and it's a place you can get to know your neighbors and it's a place you can put down roots. And we don't have to be homeowners to achieve that. So if a home is far more than four walls and a roof, 
What happens when the fear of displacement is baked into the very idea of home? Imagine you're in your home where maybe your kids are going to school, your church is next door, um, you know, you walk to the supermarket, you know, you know all the neighbors, you know, you really feel like this is your home in, in every bit the same way as people who are homeowners feel like their home is their home. And then get a note saying that you have to move and there's no reason given and there's no recourse. Not only is it just financially destabilizing, it's psychologically destabilizing. In March, the Chestnut Court Tenants Union negotiated new leases with their property management company. Now those same leases are up, and a series of no-cause evictions have followed in their place. My name is Amanda, Potter. Amanda and her family have 90 days to move from their home of 11 years. You know, the neighborhood is tight-knit, and it's local, and it's friendly, and we don't look forward to leaving. Kitty Corner to our house is a Thai restaurant that's owned by a little family, and we love their food, and we love to go there. It's, you, you, you walk in and they know your name. They know what you order. I mean, I hate to admit it, we eat there so often that I don't even have to tell them anymore. I just call and they know what I want. Um, but that's, that's the kind of neighborhood that this is. The, the um, clerks and the cashiers and the produce guys at my grocery store, they know me, they know my children. They ask how work is going. I ask how their kids are doing. It makes you feel really disposable. It makes you feel like you're a commodity, like you're a number on a piece of paper, and that the fact that you're a human being really doesn't matter. Later, I walk through the neighborhood, seeing it now through Amanda's eyes. The apartments nestled away from the street by a screen of trees and hedges, the Thai Walking restaurant the with picnic tables out front, the, Thai place, the nursery across the street like with the annual apple festival that her family night. loves. With huge just buckets of lavender and lilies exploding out in the front. I would want to live here. And I would want Amanda to be my neighbor. Something has to, something has to change. You know, you can't just have a city full of rich people. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. People have to be able to live here who don't make $100,000 a year. You have, there has to, something has to give because this has to be a city for everybody, not just for the rich people. That's not how a city works. Not everybody can make $100,000 a year. You have, you know, people who are scrubbing toilets for $7.50 an hour. They deserve to live here too, don't they? They deserve to have a safe place to go at the end of the night. This is important to everybody because this is the fate of our city. This is the fate of small business. This is the this is the fate of our of our home. Let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? Our final documentary for today is by Lucy Stevens. She brings us a story of a new storytelling series called Tender Table. Yeah, so my mom has um, lots of herbs in her garden, and so she's always... I'm in the kitchen of Stacy Tran, and tonight she's making salad. Stacy, child of Vietnamese immigrants, is chopping up lettuce, telling me about her mom's early childhood um, anyway, encounters with Western food. Like my mom's neighbor or something gave her a block of cheese and she didn't know what to do with it because she had never seen anything like that before. She's like, what is this like lavish thing? And so she just like used it as a doorstop. 
<laughs> Stacy is a writer and poet living in Southeast Portland. She's slight, sweet, and at 26, surprisingly young for someone so accomplished. I guess you like put it in a thing. Oh <laughs> <laughs> no! That's why I do tender tables so other people can show me how to do stuff. It's. I mean, I like it. In February 2017. Stacy started Tender Table. So Tender Table is a storytelling series that features women of color and um, queer folks of color, gender non-conforming people of color. One of the main components of the series is that each presenter tells their story and then has prepared this dish or um, brings in a beverage or an ingredient or something that like ties into the story through food. I attended a tender table meeting two weekends prior at the high-low gallery across town. Among a crowd of 50, predominantly composed of people of color, I listened to the speakers tell their stories. Oh, um, so looking forward to sharing that with everyone here. Uh, with, without further ado, Bayalika. That day, Bayalika brought us chocolate. Her story was centered around what she called unlearning, how she had taught herself healthy habits after a childhood of relative food scarcity. She also discussed how her Kenyan heritage intersected with her experiences growing up. I also had a chance to talk to Bayalika herself. We discussed food appropriation. I know that there is a real difference between um, punching down is an expression punching down versus punching up. Like, uh, if you're in a position of power and you're able to have the wealth and resources that come along with that, um, to appropriate another culture, especially one that is represented in other businesses, um, and those businesses are not receiving the same kind of praise or attention or business, as a white person, I think there's a certain amount of responsibility that goes into that. Yeah, I mean, there's the classic, oh, pho, like, I've had pho. I know about Vietnam. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. Like, I've had escargot, like, you know. <laughs> but Stacy was careful to tell me that she didn't want the overarching issue of food appropriation to be the sole focus of Tender Table. Rather, she wants the focus to be on the stories and the struggles of women of color living in a predominantly white city. This is how you do this. Like, this is the best way to enjoy this thing. This is how my mom taught me how to do this. I'm going to teach you to do it the same way, you know. Some of these stories are written right into recipes. Some are told through word of mouth, passed down and recorded by listening, attentive ears. And for Stacy, some through poems. How the garden will be used. As she drove, my mother spoke her grocery list to me so I could write it down. Nook mum, thịt heo, rau muông, tuong ớt gà. It was her way of teaching me the difference between suong, bone, suon, pork ribs, and suon, springtime. My uncle asked which language my thoughts form in. Was it one or the other? What does it mean to have a way to say one thing in one language, but not another? How do I convey exactly how read? The word for garden is the same as to rise up, but it is a different song.
We had music this hour by The Evens, Devo, and Woody Guthrie. The Nonprofit Hour is supported by Coalition Brewing, located at 2705 Southeast Ankeny in Inner Southeast Portland. Their tasting room is open to the public each weekend. They define their beers with balance and drinkability. Look for Space Fruit Citrus IPA, King Kitty Northwest Red, Two Flowers CBD IPA, and rotating seasonal and specialty brews on tap in your local bar and in bottles in many fine local and regional retailers. Coalition Brewing, community through beer. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Our host is Phil Bussey, and our producer and editor is Molly Jean Bennett. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is Nonprofit Hour. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to molly at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in to the Nonprofit Hour on KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM. Join us on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. and Tuesday afternoons at 1. And have a great week.